I want you to look with me, if you will, this morning to 1 John chapter number 3. Our service hosts are coming to serve you uh, in your morning giving. Our Route 57 students are being dismissed at the same time today. So just, gentlemen, uh, ladies, serve them, if you will. And I want you to look with me to 1 John chapter number 3. And I want us to talk on our third sermon, this uh, series about extravagant. I want us to delve into the extravagant image of God. Because I really believe it is impossible for us to truly become extravagant in our devotion to God. It is impossible for us to become extravagant worshipers, extravagant givers, extravagant lovers. It is truly impossible for us to understand anything at all about extravagance until we come to the understanding that the very image of the God that we serve is extravagant by nature. 1 John chapter 3, uh, verse number 1, John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that the world did not know Him. The world doesn't really understand or appreciate us because the world really doesn't understand, know, and appreciate Him. This verse is powerful on many levels, but I want you to notice that it it speaks of the love that He has lavished on us. Lavish is a synonym for extravagant, outrageous, this unrestrained excess, this way that God has loved us. That's the reason why uh, the subtitle of the book, Extravagant, is living out your response to God's outrageous love. John tells us that God has so lavished this extravagant love on us. He initiated it. Because His nature is extravagant, it is who He is as a person, and we are never going to be more like God than when we are bearing His extravagant image in the way we live our life. When we worship with extravagance, we're bearing the image of God. When we love with extravagance, we're bearing the image of God. When we give with extravagant generosity, we are bearing the image of God because extravagance is the image. When we serve others with extravagance, when we forgive those who don't deserve it, which is extravagant in and of itself, we are no more bearing the image of God than when we are extravagant in our love, in our worship, in our devotion. I want to make a confession this morning before I begin because what I'm about to talk about over the next few moments is very relevant to me and it transformed and is still transforming my own walk with Jesus Christ. For some of you um, who may not have a past like mine or didn't grow up the way I did, maybe not have the struggles that I've had in my walk with God as far as the way I view God, then this may be totally irrelevant for you and if so, I apologize. But for those of you in this room that can relate to where I've been in life and you can relate to the struggles that I have in trying to see the God of the Bible, not the God my culture gave me, you will very much appreciate what I'm going to share. And I truly believe for those of you who get it today, your walk with God will never be the same after today. I'm convinced that what we think about leads to our beliefs. And what we believe eventually leads to our actions. Thoughts lead to beliefs and beliefs lead to actions. What you focus on determines your reality. You will eventually become whatever it is that you worship. 
So if you have a warped image of God, you're going to have a warped life. If you have a warped image of God, you're never going to walk in abundance. If you have a warped image of God, you're never going to understand extravagance. And for many of us who grew up in southern uh, Bible Belt Christianity, our culture has given us a lens that has created a warped concept and a warped image of God. And much of that warped image of God has created a warped Christianity, a distorted version of Christianity, and a lot of bad stuff in our own lives. Our thoughts lead to our beliefs and our beliefs lead to actions and what you believe about God, your image of God will ultimately determine your life. Your image of God will ultimately determine how fulfilled you are as a Christian. Your image of God, what you believe about God will ultimately determine your future. In the 20th century, Uh, A.W. Tozer, the great uh, devotional writer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Were we able to extract from any person a complete answer to this question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that person. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because your image of God will determine the rest of your life. What you believe determines your actions. We're talking about something this morning deeper than professed beliefs about God. We can emphatically say we believe God is love and we can emphatically say we believe that God loves us and we can say that all of the time but in our hearts not really feel that way. We don't really feel approved by God. We don't really feel that God takes pleasure in us. We don't really feel embraced by God. So no matter how much we say God is love because that's what the Bible says, no matter how much we sing worship songs that talk about the extravagant love of God, if somewhere deep down inside of us, somewhere way back in our past, somebody handed us a distorted image of an angry, mean God, and we still carry that in the deep recesses of our heart, and we've never truly experienced or been embraced by His love and His approval, it is going to affect the fulfillment in our daily walk with God. My question for you this morning is, what is your personal image of God really like? How do you really see Him in your heart? Tozer went on to say this, our, our real idea of God may lie buried underneath the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it finally is unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. Because we learn what we're supposed to say, and a lot of times what we say because we're supposed to isn't what we really believe in the core of who we are. If we'll take an inventory of our life, of our emotions, of what we're thinking when nobody's looking, and what's going on in our heart, the instability, all of the things that are going on inside of us tell us more about what we believe about God than what actually comes out of our mouth. There are pictures and scenes throughout your life that you carry in your mind, events that happened to you, words that were spoken to you in your past that are very powerful. They carry ideas and emotions with them and they form a life script for us. For example, the child who has been abused either verbally or sexually or physically internalizes that abuse and oftentimes allows themselves as they get older to be subjected to more abuse because they just assume that's what they're worth. 
And that child often grows up to become an abuser themselves. If you grew up with a critical parent in your life, And that parent never really said anything at all affirming to you, never really blessed you, but they had this real gift of pointing out everything that was always wrong with you. You tend to carry that voice of that critical parent with you throughout your life. And you see yourself through the eyes of that critical parent and you will probably feel inadequate for the rest of your life. If you grew up in an alcoholic home where there was an alcoholic that was more in love with the substance than they were you and they were emotionally detached from you. Maybe it was your spouse or maybe it was your parent and you experienced that emotional detachment. You will probably have the same difficulty later in life with emotional detachment and carry those things into your own relationship. Whatever your personal storyline may be, you internalize it in your personal development, whether it happened as a child or later in life, and it affects the way you relate to yourself and the way you relate to others, and it even affects the way you relate to God. Because you project your negative self-images on God, and oftentimes your negative images of God are projected upon you. Because what you see in God and what you think about God is often manifested in the way you live your life. Your image of God will determine your life, your fulfillment, and your future. That's why when you look in Scripture, God is so jealous about your concept of Him. If you look at the first Ten Commandments, I mean the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the first three of the Ten Commandments have to do with guarding our image of God. The very first of the Ten Commandments says, You shall have no other gods before me. The second of the Ten Commandments says, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. The third of the Ten Commandments, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord God in vain. Every every one of the first three commandments... The priority there, God is attempting to guard His image. He is jealous about your concepts of Him because He knows if you get distorted in your image of Him, if you believe the wrong things about Him, if you see Him in an unbiblical way, the distorted image you have about God is going to affect the way you worship. It is going to affect the way you live. It is going to affect everything about your life. It will keep you from having intimacy and fellowship with Him. David understood that. That's the why the psalmist David wrote in Psalm 9, 10, Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, O Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name will trust in you. In other words, those who know you, God, will know that you are trustworthy. They won't have any problems with surrender. They won't have any problems placing their trust in you because they know you are trustworthy. For David, he was referring to the character of God, knowing that God's character was trustworthy. The question this morning is, do you trust God's character? In your experience, is God hard on people? Is He mean to them? Is He cruel or unloving if he is if that's the image in the deep places of your heart that you have about God you can't trust that God you can't love that God you can't have faith in that God you can't have a real relationship with God whom you believe in the core of your being is hard unjust cruel mean or unloving there's an often quoted verse in scripture that is used to explain why many in the world don't come to faith in Christ or many in our families or our friends don't come to faith in Christ You've heard it. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4. And this is what we often quote to explain why people don't come to faith in Christ. In their case, the scripture says, 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Notice the number one tactic of Satan. He has blinded the unbeliever from seeing Jesus, who is the image of God. The issue Satan is trying to... The very thing Jesus is jealous to protect, the very thing God is jealous to protect, the concept of God, so he sets up three of the first ten commandments. The first three commandments are commandments to guard you against idolatry or distorted images of God because it is the very thing that Satan tries to use to get you off base. He has blinded the minds of unbelievers by keeping them from seeing the image of God. If he can keep them from seeing the image of God in Jesus Christ, he can mess all of this up. Get it? He has blinded their minds to the image of God. If a man sees God for who he really is, if a person really understands Jesus, the expressed image of God, if he sees that compassion, if he understands that grace, he sees that love and brokenness and acceptance and compassion, it is hard to reject that. So the enemy spends his time attempting to distort the world's image of God, blinding the minds of them that do not believe and distorting the image of God in the minds of them who do. If you have some false ideas and concepts of God, they'll rise up and keep you from surrendering, trusting, knowing, and really loving Him for who He is. Many people today who say they're rejecting God are not really rejecting God. They're rejecting a concept of God that somebody has placed in their minds. I've often wondered if an entire generation of young adults has rejected church and God altogether because they have the wrong idea of God by watching the way we live our lives. They've seen our quarreling and our backbiting and our legalism and our performance-based theology and uh, our, our misunderstanding of grace and our inward focus as a church and they think, wow, if that's the image of God, I'm better off without Him. And there's a whole generation of people who have rejected God and church because we have given them a false image of who God is. They've never really been introduced to the biblical Jesus. They've never really understood the God of the book. All they have seen is our cultural version of our distortion of God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had the same experience. They had a genuine fellowship with God. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They were intimate. They were relationship. They hung out together. They knew Him. They knew His character. There was no distortion at all in their perception of God. But the moment sin entered into their lives, their view of God became distorted. They all of a sudden ran and hid themselves behind the bushes because they were aware of their nakedness and they felt guilty and ashamed because of their sin. I ask a question just for you to think about this morning. In that moment, all of a sudden man and woman felt guilty and ashamed and they were separated from God. Who had changed in that instance? Had God changed at all in the Garden of Eden? I mean here He had walked intimately with them one day and now they're running from Him in fear. When God asked them, why did you go hide? They said, we were afraid. You know why they were afraid? Because sin distorted their image of God. And instead of seeing God as that loving Father that was walking with them in the cool of the day the day before, now that sin came into the world, their image of God was distorted 
they didn't feel like they could approach him and they ran and hid because they were afraid. Sin separates us from God because it distorts our image of God and we begin to see him through lenses lenses that are not true. It gives us a distorted image. We've all sinned and many of us have allowed God to forgive us. We're Christians, but a lot of times we hold on to that one big thing, guilt. Guilt and resentment. We know that God has forgiven us, so we feel like, but yet we carry all of that stuff with us going forward even after the grace of God has been applied to our lives and guilt and resentment will ultimately take their toll on us with long-term feelings of shame and bondage. I read a story of a counselor who was on the college uh, campus, a seminary, a Bible college, and the counselor uh, wrote, he said, a young male seminary student came to him um, and sat down very nonchalant, almost kind of frustrated. And he walked in and said, hey, the only reason I'm here is that my wife kicked me out of the house and said, if you don't see a counselor, don't come home tonight. And he said, I'd kind of like to go home, so that's why I'm here to see you. So the counselor said, well, what's the problem? Then he said, I, I, you know, my wife tells me that I, I, I pick her apart, that I don't value her, that I'm always critical and, and I pick on her all the time. And he said, you know, when I look back, she's right. I talk, I, 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 for some reason, I think positive things about her, but I don't ever say them. And the only things I ever say to her are critical. I've picked on her about the way she walks, the way she talks, the way she cooks, the way she dresses, the way she cleans the house. She's right. I just pick, pick, pick. And it's destroying our marriage. And as the more he talked, the more open he became. And he said, can you help me? The counselor asked him this question. Is there something in your past that you will not forgive yourself for? And the young man said, yeah, but how did you know that? Because we're here trying to help me talk about how to treat my wife different. This is about my wife. This is not about me. And the counselor said, no, this is all about you. Because the reason you find so much wrong in your wife is it's a projection of what is wrong on the inside of you. Is there something in your life that you have not been able to forgive yourself for? And he said, absolutely. The young man went over in the next few moments to explain how during his engagement with his wife, before she was his wife, he had been unfaithful to her and actually was sexually active with another girl. And he said, I have since begged God to forgive me, but I am so ashamed of that event. The counselor said to the young man, when you will not forgive yourself, you become so hard on yourself. God may have forgiven you and washed that sin away, but you've been unable to forgive yourself. And when you walk in this life with resentment and bitterness towards yourself, you project that bitterness upon other people. It becomes a critical spirit. You become nitpicky and critical towards everybody else in your life and towards those that are around you. If you're around people, and I want to tell you this, you just, you just listen to me. If you're around people in your life who are always negative, always critical, they seem to have the gift of picking out what is wrong in you or anything else they're a part of for that matter, and it seems to be work for them to find anything that's right in this life, what that's going on in their life is often an outward symptom of their own internal misery. 
They are unhappy with themselves. Maybe they can't forgive themselves. And their inability to forgive themselves or their misery in their own life often stems from their own view of God. Somewhere, way back, somebody, a parent or a pastor, the church they grew up in, projected an image of God upon them where God was angry and judgmental or unforgiving. Maybe God had an impossible standard for them to live up to and they spent their entire life trying to gain the acceptance of God like they did a father or a parent. And that's, that's what they believe about God. And what you believe about God is what you're going to be. You become what you worship. Whatever you understand about God, your beliefs about Him are eventually going to find their way into your life. If you don't believe you become what you worship, listen to what the psalmist David said in Psalm 115. Listen. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to Your name be the glory. Because of Your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. But their idols are silver and gold made with the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but they cannot uh, feel. They have feet... uh, They have hands but cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Verse 8. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. David said these people have distorted their view of God from the wonderful loving creator of the universe and created idols with their hands who are mute and dumb and and, and they, they can't speak or talk. Those people are going to become just like the gods that they have created. You become what you worship. Your focus determines your reality. N.T. Wright, great theologian, said in Simply Christian, this brings us to the first of two golden rules at the heart of spirituality. You become what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object you worship. Those who worship money will become human calculating machines. Those who worship sex become obsessed with their own attractiveness or prowess. Those who worship power become more and more ruthless. Your focus determines your reality. If your image of God this morning is this angry deity, you're going to reflect that in your life. You'll live afraid of His punishment and the Christian life will be a list of rules to follow and rituals that you have to keep. You'll go through and pray uh, so many times a day and you'll give out a compulsion and you'll go to church in order to appease God or keep the guilt off of your back in order to avoid God's wrath. If your view of God is this cosmic scorekeeper that has this big chalkboard in heaven and He's taking notes of the good little boys and the bad little boys like your mean third grade teacher, then you'll be driven to a performance-based relationship relationship based on your own self-effort. You'll never be at peace. You'll never find happiness. You'll never understand surrender because you'll never be able to measure up. God's standard is too difficult for us to measure to in our own self-effort. But if you start seeing God in the extravagance of who He really is, if you see His abundance, if you get a glimpse of the grace in His eyes, if you're one time embraced by the magnitude of His love, if you read the Scriptures and understand the generosity in His heart, and you begin to worship those things in Him and see Him for who He is, the extravagant part of His image will begin to manifest itself in your life. What you view about God will determine the rest of your life. 
We will never be extravagant as worshipers, as lovers, as livers, as givers. We will never be extravagant in those areas of our life until we understand that God is extravagant in His own nature towards us. The way you love will be determined by the way you think He loves you. The way you forgive will be determined by the measure in which you think He really forgives you. You can never trust Him until you see Him as trustworthy. That's why I started in 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. It all starts with Him. So extravagant, so deep, so powerful. One day, Jesus wanted to teach His followers how to pray. And He said to them, you know, your Father knows what you have need of before you even ask it. And so the disciples said, well then... How should we really pray then? If the Father knows that we have need of before we even ask it, how, how should we pray? And then he started that famous Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. He gives us the right picture that we ought to have in our heart about God, our Father. You see, the right picture of God is a loving Father. And some of us, it's hard for us to get that because we never had a loving Father modeled in front of us. And so it's hard for you to see God that way. He's not a deity to be feared in the fear of punishment. He's not a cosmic scorekeeper. He's not some distant, impersonal force that is watching us from a distance. He is personal, loving, kind, holy. He's a just Father who loves you and wants you to turn to learn and learn how to respond to Him in a loving relationship with Him. All of us that are parents that have kids, every one of us have a dream for our children. Some of us are better at verbalizing that over our children than others. But inside our heart, we all have these desires in our heart of what we want God to do with our kids. I mean, we want them to be healthy. We want them to be safe. And we want them to walk into that Jeremiah 29, 11 purpose and plan that God has for their life. And yet, the kids that we love so deeply can either be the source of greatest joy of our life or they can be the source of the greatest grief in our life. Because the people you love the most can hurt you the deepest. And somewhere along the way, if you're going to parent children, mine aren't that old. I mean, I'm, I'm parenting my first teenager, but I've learned already. Somewhere along the way, even kids that mean the best can sometimes hurt you and wound you the deepest. And yet, even when our children wound us and they hurt us, it doesn't take away the desire that we have for them for the best. At the end of the day, we still have a dream for them. And your Heavenly Father has a dream for your life. And you have incredible power and influence with God because He has allowed you to grieve Him. The Scripture says that our lives, we bring great joy to Him. We bring great grief to Him. We can influence His emotions. We, he can be sad or He can be happy because of the life that we live. God's dream for all of our children, is all of His children, is to make us into the image of His Son. Paul told the church in 2 Corinthians 3.18, what God is doing in you is to reflect the Lord's glory. He told in Romans 8.29 that what He's trying to do, He has predestined us to conform to the image of the likeness of His Son. What He's trying to do in us is create in us the image of God, the image of Jesus Christ. And in that Romans 8.28-29 passage, God says, I'm going to use anything necessary to create that image in you. 
He will use relationships, circumstances, difficulty, pain. He won't waste anything. He'll use all of it for good to conform you into the image of His Son. And we'll learn one day, we're not exactly in that image right now, we're trying to be like the image of His Son. One day we're going to be transformed and be with Him for eternity. We're going to be made perfect just like Him. But in this life, His work is trying to conform us into His image. His image is extravagance. But if we have a distorted view of who He is... It's going to be distorted in the way we live our life. David was so extravagant in worship because he viewed God as an extravagantly loving, extravagantly kind, extravagantly compassionate, forgiving, and accepting God. That's why he writes in Psalm 103. Listen to this. We read the first few verses of Psalm 103 and they are very prominent. But we stop reading after we get past the prominent verses. But I want you to picture in your... What it, when, when, you, when I read this to you, you see this on the screen. Why do you think David was known after a man after God's own heart? Why do you think David was such a passionate, devoted worshiper? Why do you think David danced before the Lord with all of his might in an extravagant display of worship when the glory of the Lord came back home? Because what he believed about God determined the way he lived his life. See if you can capture the way David viewed God in Psalm 103. What is his image of God? Is God mean and unjust and unfair? Is he a cosmic scorekeeper who is angry? Or is he this loving, gracious Father? Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear Him and His righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep His covenant and remember to obey His precepts. The Lord has established His throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His bidding, who obey His word. Praise the Lord, all His heavenly hosts, you His servants who do His will. Praise the Lord, all His works, everywhere in His dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Don't you understand why David was so extravagant in his worship, so devoted to God in his praise? Because he saw, when I read Psalm 103, it's easy for me to understand why David was able to act the way he acted because he believed this about God. Loving, compassionate, extravagant Father. And all of this comes from a man who history may know him better as an adulterer and a murderer. 
But yet, he didn't allow what was wrong about him from seeing what was right about God. And because David didn't spend his whole life being defined in adultery and murder, he understood that God had forgiven him. And he didn't project adultery and murder on God. He allowed the grace, the loving kindness, the compassion, the extravagance of God to redefine him. And probably more often than not, David is talked about as a man after the heart of God, not the adulterer and murderer that he was in his past. Because he allowed his belief about God to define his future. Don't you think somebody with the past like David, an adulterer and a murderer, if they projected that upon God and they saw God as this mean, cruel, unmerciful God, don't you think David would have lived this bitter, unfulfilled, unhappy life because he thought God was never going to allow him to measure up, never going to love him, he was never going to be good enough. But because David understood God as compassionate, his loving kindness endured to all generations, he's not going to stay angry. He's going to turn compassionate towards His children. He's going to forgive all our sins, He said. He's going to heal all our diseases. And that image of God as an extravagantly loving God is what made David the extravagant worshiper that he was. What you believe about God will determine your life, it will determine your fulfillment, and it will determine your future. I want the team to come back if they will. And help us bring this to a close this morning. Um, I said at the beginning of this service, this may be irrelevant to some of you. And, I, and forgive me if it was. But for people like me, um, it's very relevant. I grew up in a really performance-based, self-effort driven, holiness tradition that focused more on the wrath of God than it did the grace of God. And so I lived my whole life thinking God was angry at me. I mean, even in ministry, my theology was shaped. And I couldn't understand if Jesus was alive and my sins were forgiven and I was on my way to heaven, why wasn't there any more joy in my life? I mean, people are coming to Christ. I'm preaching this greatest story that's ever been told and lives are being changed. And I realized that it was my image of God. I said all the right things. But down inside my heart, I really didn't believe God was pleased with me. Because of some of my past, because of my brokenness, because of maybe some of the things in my own life that happened to me, I projected what I felt about myself on God. One of the most powerful words, prophetic words that have ever been spoken over my life. Um, You know, I've had a lot of people in 21 years traveling in various places that have given me prophetic words. They've told me things that God was going to do in my life. Things that should have gotten me more excited about how great God was going to use me and this and that. And they would paint these detailed pictures. And and you would think those kinds of things would be the most powerful, memorable things in my life. But they're not. Two times in my life. And they've both happened here in this church in the last probably two years from people that go to this church unconnected, unrelated, have come up to me after service and said, Pastor, I was praying this morning and God just wanted me to tell you He takes pleasure in you. Now that may seem really insignificant to you, but that's the most profound word that has ever been spoken to my life. The fact that this God 
I've been trying to perform for all my life, to earn His love, to earn His grace, to be good enough to get His favor, literally, prophetically sent a love letter to me and say, I take pleasure in you. When, when, when I started seeing God as this God that approved of me, that loved me, that embraced me, you know what? It's really easy to jump for a God like that. It's really easy to take a leap of faith for a God you know that takes pleasure in you. It's easy to get up in the morning and set aside some time to pray and to open your Bible and to hang out with the God that you think. He's not holding a grudge against you. My view about God determined the fulfillment in my life. And when I all of a sudden was realized that God really takes pleasure in me, it's easy for me to give everything to Him, to surrender there's no chance of us being extravagant in our devotion to God unless we see the extravagance of His love and His pursuit and His image toward us. What we believe about Him will affect our future. It will affect our life. I want you to stand with me this morning, if you will. I really... I really struggled this morning as to how I should close the service because uh, I really don't know with the depth of what I'm saying if it's one of those things that you just flippantly respond to and say oh that's me and then that's the end of it I think it's one of those things you have to wrestle with what do I A.W. Tozer said it N.T. Wright said it what you believe about God may take some time and be painstaking because it's not what you say it's what you really believe in your heart it may take you a little time but if you're critical and negative and judgmental and you have the gift of finding what's wrong in church or life or other people it's probably because you think God feels that way about you and that's just a projection upon other people of what you think God's doing in you if you change your image of God it may change the joy that you get out of life and I'm not telling you just to change your image of God to what you want God to be I'm telling you to find out who God is in the book and if you'll read Psalm 103 you'll find out what David thought about God extravagantly loving extravagantly accepting gracious, merciful he's not a cosmic scorekeeper he's a loving father he's not an angry deity he's an accepting, grace-filled, compassionate God I can give my life to that kind of God I can surrender to that kind of God. I can give all that I have and make extravagant leaps of faith to that kind of God, but it'll never happen until I see His extravagance. And He's working hard to bear His image in us. Would you let Him conform you into the image of His Son? I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you today. And while I'm praying the blessing, I want our prayer team for the 830 service if they would come. Even now if you want to make your way here and make themselves available. And whether it's application of what I prayed and preached this morning, or whether you have any other need in your life you need these people to pray with you about. If God's just telling you to sit in this room in an environment of worship for a moment and just to be embraced by His love, I challenge you to do that. Because if you can get a picture of how passionately in love with you He really is, there'll be a new sense of security in your life, joy in your walk, passion in your worship. It's called extravagance. And it's who God is. Father, thank You today. 
thank you because you first loved us. John said you lavished your love on us. Today I pray that you will open my fear in preaching this message is Lord that it only related to me. But there's got to be somebody else in this room today and if they can get what I say today it'll transform their walk with God. It'll be a walk of grace. Their worship, their loving, their giving, their surrender, their sacrifice, their obedience. It'll all go to another level because it'll be driven by different motives. Free us from performance-based religion and let us serve you because we're in a divine dance with a God that loves us. Will you bless them and keep them? Make your face shine down upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction. Give them peace. In Jesus' name.